0: Well, I don't know about you, I cannot believe it is actually Advent and that we have got to this point in the uh, year already, first Sunday of Advent, this period when we, as a church, as uh, as a local church, as the uh, worldwide church, prepare our hearts for Christmas. And, of course, Advent, traditionally, is also about looking forward to the Lord's return, and when we celebrate the coming of Christ in history and the coming of Christ at the end of history. And this year, over the Sundays of Advent, we're going to look at the promise of Advent. We're going to look at the foreshadowing of Advent. We're going to look at the announcement of Advent and on Christmas morning at the fulfillment of Advent. But today, we're going to start by looking at our need for Advent. And I say need with okay, some hesitation because over the coming weeks in the build-up to Christmas, you are going to be told that you need all sorts of things that actually you do not need. Okay, you're going to be told you need this new gadget or you need this lovely food or this expensive experience. And if you don't have it, your Christmas, or worse still, your loved one's Christmas might just be ruined. When in reality, hey, you might want that stuff, but you almost certainly don't need it. Okay, so the danger of calling this talk the need for Advent, is I just join in with everybody else and try and oversell you Christmas. Okay, I don't think that's the case. Whether you know you need Advent or not, you seriously, all of us, need it. Okay, first point then, the false promise. Now, when I went to university for the first time, my mother did two things. Firstly, she replaced me with a dog. And uh, secondly, she offered to buy me a car, okay, which is uh, incredibly generous. I mean, admittedly, she did it so that I would go back and see her at weekends. But even so, it was incredibly generous. But of course, my mother and I, we knew absolutely nothing about cars. So we looked up in those days, you look up on local newspaper, found an advert for a little Renault 5. Those of you who remember Renault 5, this car sounded great. So we went to see it and the owner said, hey, this is in excellent condition and he knew all about cars. He did all of his own uh, maintenance work and he said, look, if you, have any, you buy the car, if you have any problems with this car, just give me a call, bring it over and I will fix it for you. So we thought, hey, this is too good to be true and bought the car. Okay, and it was too good to be true. And within a day, every time I stuck the key in the ignition to turn the car on, it would make this horrendous screeching noise. Okay, it was one of those awful noises that somebody passing by in the street just looks at you and thinks, what is going on there? So I rang the man up. And I said, hey, look, this is the problem with the car. Did he want to know? No, he did not. He had promised... Everything and I had been sold a dud. Look at today's passage because that is what is going on here. The first chapters of Genesis don't just give us an account of human origins, they give us an, the Bible's explanation of the origins of sin, how a good world has gone badly wrong. Okay, so look at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast. What does it mean to be crafty? Okay, it doesn't mean to be good at making craft at the women's Christmas event, does it? It doesn't mean that you are good with your hands and you know, you're making a lovely table decoration for Christmas. Okay, What does crafty mean? You know, one dictionary defines crafty as being clever but in a dishonest way. Of achieving your aims, but by deceitful means. And when you try and, I hope you don't, but when you try and deceive someone, you want them to believe something that you know is false. Like, this car's a gem, and you're not going to have any problems with it. Or, changing the illustration, you know, invest in this, and the returns are going to be enormous. Deceitfulness, craftiness. And the Bible from Eden onwards warns you, warns me, of what you probably already know by experience. And that is that craftiness and deceitfulness can have a corrosive effect in your life. That one of the major ways that temptation works is through craftiness, it's through deceitfulness, because it promises you something. But it knows it cannot deliver. Or it promises you something, but it only tells you half the truth. It tells you the good, what you're gonna enjoy, but it doesn't tell you the bad, the negative. Or like an elderly aunt who invites herself round for a cup of tea at the end of November, but she arrives with suitcases ready to stay until Christmas. <laughs> Temptation might deliver, Temptation might come around, but it comes around with a whole load of unwanted baggage. Okay, so in his parable of the sower, Jesus says one of the major things that hinders your fruitfulness in life is deceitfulness, the deceitfulness of riches. If you can just earn more, if you could just earn a bit more, if you could go for that job where the salary is that bit higher, if you could have more, life will be better. You'll be happier. Doors to great experience will be opened. So what do we do? We work for it. We go for the job. We get it, but we find it doesn't quite work. We're not quite as happy as we thought we would be. And so obviously we think, well, that's clearly I don't have enough. So I need to earn a bit more, I need to get more, I need to possess more. And what you'd find is you find yourself on this treadmill of getting, but never getting satisfaction. Or, also on deceitful, the Apostle Paul talks of how you and I can be corrupted by deceitful desires. Jesus homes in on money Paul rightly says there's money and there's all of these other deceitful desires we have. There's a practically limitless list of things that we want so much, thinking if I have this, I will be happy. And we get it. And what happens is we experience the great letdown. And that is why the writer to the Hebrews urges his readers not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And sin is deceitful, and it has this hardening effect on our hearts because it promises us the good life. It says, this will be great if you do this. It'll be great if you have this. It'll be great if you behave in this way. You will have the good life, but it slowly and steadily drives us away from what is truly good. And as it does, and as time and again it fails to deliver, what you find is you become more and more cynical about life. It's the hardening effect of sin in our hearts. And so if in the garden, Adam and Eve find themselves facing the subtler assault of a crafty and deceitful enemy, we all do. The enemy's not changed. The tactics haven't changed. It's the false promise, this will be great. And you find that you've been sold a dud. Okay, but home in on, look at how the serpent works his deceit. He comes to the woman and he says, verse one, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I mean, really? That is so regressive. That is so repressive. He clearly does not want you to enjoy the best of life. All of these petty rules. All of this, you can do this, but you can't do that, always trying to constrain you and contain you and stop you being you and expressing your true self. You you would be so much better off being rid of him, turn your back on him and strike out on your own. That's a truly courageous thing to do. And what he does, what he's doing is he is getting her to question the goodness of God and the goodness of God's word and God's ways for her life but of course God didn't say you cannot eat of any tree in the garden he said just the one but rather than let her see God as the good and generous provider that he is the one who knows that boundaries are necessary if we're going to truly thrive in life the serpent wants her and everybody sins to see God as a narrow-minded killjoy. And it's the same argument that is being used in our secular post-Christian culture. So the woman tries to correct him. And she tells him, they can eat from the trees, just not the one in the middle, because if they do that, they will die. To which the serpent replies, verse 4, he will not surely die. Look, he says, this stuff God says to you about consequences. If you do this, then this will happen. You know, if you behave like this or that, you know, there, there will be consequences. Believe me, there won't be any consequences. He is having you on. There won't be any consequences, not negative ones anyway. There might be good consequences, but not negative ones, not bad ones. Instead, he tells a good will come if they go down this path, verse five. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. And of course, just like for her, just like for them in the garden, when temptation comes knocking on our door, you know, like a door-to-door salesman comes knocking on your door, you and I are also sold the line. There will be no negative consequences. Now, have you ever received a christmas present or have you ever given a christmas present where you know that there would be consequences maybe good consequences hopefully good consequences you know, one of the things that our girls uh, really enjoy doing is giving what they call a bond you know a promise as a present you know i promise Mum to take you on a picnic just the two of us Dad, you know, we get to spend the day together. Dad, I promise to take you on a day's hiking and we get to spend the day together. Those are promises with great intended, seen upfront consequences. Or, negatively, when our girls were younger, every year my brother deliberately bought them the most irritatingly noisy present he could buy. You know, one of those things that makes those horrible jingly sounds. You know, like something with an electronic jingle that you couldn't turn off. Or one of those games where you hit something, something pops up and makes one of those noises. that just gets under your skin. And he did it knowing full well the consequences. Okay, he did it knowing the negative consequences that would mean for his brother's Christmas Day. Intended, seen upfront consequences. Temptation works differently, doesn't it? Temptation hides the consequences, or at least the negative ones. Maybe you're stressed, and you go online and you click on something thinking it'll relieve your stress. But you find yourself going back repeatedly, becomes controlling, and ironically ends up increasing your stress. Maybe you allow yourself to get emotionally close to a colleague at work because they're showing some interest in you, and it feels good but it unleashes problems and difficulties in your life that you never expected or wanted, and that feel-good feeling doesn't last for long. In fact, it goes the other way. Maybe social media gives you the chance to put yourself out there, feel good about yourself, just project yourself a bit, but instead you find yourself caught in the comparison game and your mental health begins to suffer. As we said earlier, maybe you hear the promises of having more but you end up feeling less content, ironically. You're earning more, but you're less content. And you're experiencing more conflict in relationships than ever. In fact, you know the great irony of our generation, our time? We are the, considered, we are the wealthiest generation ever. Yet we're also the unhappiest. We have more. What we don't have is more peace, more contentment, more wholeness. And the question is, why not? Because, and why not? Because you know, it's not as if everything that we desire or attempted by is wrong, is it? Some of it's good stuff. Augustine wrote, even those things that are wrong have a flawed reflection of beauty, that in some way they mirror what is good and right. In fact, I think one of the things that's interesting about this Genesis 3 passage is how it wants us to see just how good and beautiful the fruit looked to the woman, verse 6. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. Okay, but beautiful though it was, in taking, she lost, didn't she? She took, but she lost something far more beautiful in the process. And it is that loss that has the power to explain our emptiness and our need for Advent. Second point then the harsh reality. Okay, so having been promised that they're going to be like God and for the first time really be able to see things and decide for themselves what's right and wrong, they experience the cold reality. They discover that just like a scorpion has a sting in its tail, sin does as well. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. What is that? It's not just the loss of innocence, is it? It is also the loss of feeling okay in your own skin. Of that, It's a loss of that unquestioned sense of worth that isn't, that isn't based on pride, but has everything to do with knowing that you are loved and that you have a unique place in the universe. But that's lost. And in place of that comes shame. And with the shame, the need to hide and to present a better image of yourself than the real you. Okay, but they didn't just hide their true selves from each other, did they? Verse 8, they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and woman hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Do you have any Christmas traditions? You know, over the years, we've got this growing list of Christmas traditions. Mopi was one of them. Sadly, Mopi now is spending more time in Nigeria. Mopi used to come to our place for Christmas every year, and she described herself as our Christmas fairy, the fairy on the tree. Sadly, that tradition is coming to an end. Um, But as a family, and Mopi's experienced this, we've got a number of traditions, one of which is we unwrap our presents after Christmas lunch. But before anyone gets to unwrap anything everyone has to wrap up warm and go out on a walk and what happens typically is that the young ones walk on ahead and you're chatting to themselves and then sue and i hang back and we talk to our uh, guests and that's just a great time you know we've had some lovely conversations for example with mopey christmas afternoon going for for a walk there's something wonderful about going for a walk with a friend isn't there enjoying a meal going for a walk together talking about stuff, escaping all the noise. The implication is, of verse 8, that's exactly what Adam and Eve got to do every evening with God. They hear him in the garden and they recognise the noise. They recognise it because this has happened before. They are like kids hiking with their dad. They're like friends going for a walk with their friend. These two got to walk with God. This day is different, isn't it? God comes again, and this time they hear the familiar sound, but they hide. Now, if realizing realizing their nakedness is a tragic portrayal of the loss of innocence and self-worth, what does hiding from God say? What does hiding from God say about the impact of sin on their relationship with God? Because they have enjoyed this relationship of closeness and intimacy and friendship. And what's it been replaced by? Distance, hiding, shame, keeping God at arm's length. Rather than face him, hide from him. Maybe you know what that feels like. Maybe you are not yet a Christian, but you know there's a God you also know there's a distance between you and god and sometimes you want to do something about it sometimes you want to try and close the gap but how are you supposed to do it but listen even if you are a christian you almost certainly experience at times this distance and the hiding and the shame you do something that you know you shouldn't or you don't do something that you know you should And it is as if in that moment your relationship with God freezes in time. And unless you deal with this, unless you go back and deal with this issue, distance and coldness begins to creep in. As a writer to the Hebrews might put it, it's the first hints of hardness. The deceitfulness of sin which hardens hearts. Okay, but look at Adam's explanation in verse 10. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Now, if I were to ask you, what are you afraid of? What would you reply? Spiders? You know, I, I hate spiders. I saw on the news this week that apparently a South African, thank you to the South Africans, a South African brand of spider, species of spider, is now established in the Lausanne area, which leaps at you and digs. is it's a vampire spider, apparently, as if I didn't hate spiders enough. Or heights, I also detest heights. What about Father Christmas? Are you afraid of Father Christmas breaking into your house at night? Okay, whatever, whatever our fears are, Adam's talking about something different, isn't he? There's some kind of circumstantial fear. He's talking about a different kind of fear of God, an unhealthy fear of God, a wrong fear. A, rela- a relationship of awe and wonder of love and unquestioning trust has been trashed. And now there's a wariness, there's an anxiety, there's a fear, how will he treat me? I want you to think how much of that kind of fear influences our human lives. Think about politics. Think about parenting. Think about how many decisions are based on fear. Or a suspicion of others, or the idea that the universe is adversarial and dangerous. Why? Because once our relationship with God is broken and we lose that knowledge that God is good and He is for us, fear becomes a daily reality. Okay, but it wasn't just their relationship with God that lay broken. God asks Adam, verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam replies, verse 12, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Notice the blame shifting. The woman, it's her fault. She made me do it. Just think for a moment. Why can we be slow to admit our faults? Or to admit that we're responsible for something. Or to acknowledge our failures. Often it's precisely because of fear, isn't it? We fear what others might think of us if we do fess up. Or how they might treat us. And so what we try and do is we try and shift the blame onto somebody else. But that blaming and that accusing is a root of so many relational problems. And tragically, of course, this time of year is not immune, is it? One of the consequences of a consumerized Christmas has become that instead of peace on earth and goodwill to men, we've introduced financial strain and with it relational strain and expectations go unmet and comparisons with what others are getting or doing are being made and then we blame because it becomes a point of conflict. Why isn't my life like them? It's because of you or it's because of, of that and we look for who's to blame. But of course, it's not limited to Christmas, whether it's divorce rates or political polarization or war, the impact of blaming others and of relational breakdown, frankly, are everywhere. Okay, but notice Adam doesn't just blame Eve. It's not just any old woman that made him do it, but the woman whom you gave to be with me. And when life is not going the way that we want or we're facing consequences for our bad choices, it isn't just others that we tend to blame. We can also find ourselves blaming God because he's not giving me the life I want. He's not giving me the life I think I deserve, that I think he owes me. And yet, of course, what this passage makes clear is that God doesn't owe us anything. It's us who owe him But it also tells us why life so often doesn't go the way we want it to go. God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. It's not just relationships that are broken, is it? The world is. And the garden has become a weed patch. And stuff doesn't work like it should. Your plans don't come to fruition. And work sometimes can be frustrating. And not just humanity, but creation itself is out of sync with the creator. Okay, but if this passage tells us about the false promise in the harsh reality, it also tells us that it's God who is going to do something about it. Last point then, the great hope. I think it would be fair to say that all the major religions and all of modern psychology and spirituality, they share one thing in common, and that is that to fix what is wrong with the world, we have to do it. It's on your shoulders, whether it is the Noble Eightfold Path of Buddhism, Whether it is the five pillars of Islam, whether it is Peterson's The Twelve Laws of Life, there is a recognition that the world is broken, we're a part of the problem, and it is down to us to fix it. It might start with something as simple as stand up straight with your shoulders back, but the initiative lies with us. Christianity is totally different. Christianity stands apart. It stands alone because it says, yes, the world is broken and we are part of the problem, but it is God who has taken the initiative to fix it. Maybe you've seen one of those TV programs where the CEO comes and pitches up at work. A CEO of a company comes and pitches up at work as a cleaner or as a shop assistant, as a to to serve or as as a customer to see what the problems are really like on the shop floor advent tells you god has done that but he's done more than that in christ's birth he hasn't just pitched up on the shop floor to experience what it's like to be you he has come to put things right but it begins back in the garden right back at the start When humanity in Adam and Eve first turn away from God, who makes the first move? When Adam and Eve are hiding, it is God who comes in search of them. Verse nine, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? So whereas other religions and modern spirituality tell you to search for the divine, the Bible says right from the beginning, God has been searching for you. Where are you? I'm coming for you, where are you? (coughs) But notice what else he says. As he passes judgment, he first addresses the serpent. And in cursing, it says, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, from Eve onwards, a seed has been passed from one generation to the next until an offspring comes. Until the day comes when an offspring of a woman arrives who does battle with the sin and the evil at the root of all our problems. That's what God is promising. It's why Matthew Henry, the great Puritan writer, describes God's judgment here as the dawning of the gospel day. Because just as darkness is about to descend, God promises a much greater dawn is coming. And when it does, it will come because one will come who will bruise the serpent's head, but in the process, he too will be bruised. Of course, the rest of the Bible traces the line of that seed, doesn't it? The rest of the Bible traces the line of that offspring of woman. And it traces the line through the great patriarchs like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it traces it through the great tribal leaders like Judah and mighty kings like David. It's a kind of line you would expect a great warrior who's going to come and slay the dragon to come from. So that's not all that you can say about the line, is it? Because the line is also traced through unloved wives like Leah or rejected women like Tamar or excluded foreigners like Ruth. And God chooses that alongside the great ones. He chooses the despised and the spurned and the cast off. And he makes that the offspring's line. And as he does, it is as if he is saying, through this one who is going to come, through this one who's going to come and fight the greatest of battles, I'm going to make all that messed upness right. I'm going to love the unlovely. I'm going to heal the broken. And I'm going to bring back those who are alienated. And then he comes. And when Luke gives us the genealogy, the line of the seed, he traces it all the way back to the garden, to Adam. Jesus, the son of Adam, the son of God. Listen to how Paul puts it. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come. After all of that time, from that fateful day in the garden to that momentous night in Bethlehem, when a young woman gives birth in a stable, in God's perfect time, his plan of redemption swings into action and his son, come to do battle with the serpent and to slay the dragon, is born. And that's what Advent is all about. Paul says Jesus was born to redeem those under the law, and to redeem means to buy back, and principally to buy back from slavery, to pay the price and to buy a slave's freedom. And that's why we need Advent, whether you realise it or not, because we too need rescuing, we too need redeeming from this cycle of sin and deceitful desires and hiding and shame that can keep us enslaved. Because we also need rescuing from something else as well, Paul says, and it's God's law, ironically. Because the law tells us, hey, this is how far you've fallen. This is how broken we are. This is how stuck we are. And we're powerless to do anything about it. But as the old hymn says, the second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. And he lived the perfect life that Adam and all of us have failed to live. And when he was tempted, he didn't cave in. Instead, at the cross, he gave his life and he died the death that we all deserve to die. And there he crushed Satan. But as he did, he too was crushed. But not for his iniquities, for our iniquities, so that we might be made whole. So that as Paul says we might receive adoption as sons and as daughters. So if you're not yet a Christian, you don't need to stay distant. You don't need to hide. God has come searching for you in the Lord Jesus. And he comes searching for you today by his spirit. And he invites you to come and enter into a relationship with him, to have your relationship with your heavenly father restored. But if you are a Christian, however distant you feel, you can know you are chosen. You are loved. Christ came for you and you are redeemed. The problem starts in Eden. That's where the problem starts. It's also there that we are told there is a solution. And Advent tells us that solution is Christ and he has come. Let's pray.